1: Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. I wanted to remind you that we've interviewed over 750 advisors, authors, and thought leaders, and you can find all their interviews in 40 different topic file folders online at exitradio.com And if you need to get our app and listen to, uh, to sh- our daily shows uh, on your smartphone, go to uh, ecrmobile.com in your web browser, and it'll pull up our app icon. My next guest is David. McAlvany. He's the CEO of McAlvany Financial Group. It's a precious metals brokerage and money management firm. It's been a business since 1972. And uh, David is a director of also um, the Swiss corporation Global Gold. He's been a featured speaker around the country analyzing world events and their impact on the global economy and financial markets. David's also a member of the investment committee for the Fort Lewis College Foundation. We're going to talk about uh, Oh, a wide variety of topics. Let's just put it that way. We're going to talk about preparing your family for a year of volatility. So, David, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
2: Bill, great to be with you today.
1: David, uh, tell me a little bit about your, your firm. It's, you've been doing this for quite a while. And um, how, how, is, how have things changed over the last many years and how would you get started?
2: You know, going back to the 1960s, my father was working on Wall Street at the time and saw that the guns and butter policies of that day were going to lead to an inflationary outcome. And lo and behold, by the early 70s, when he started his business, the the precious metals business, uh, these were real issues. They they were issues that were very concerning for investors, those living on fixed incomes, those with fixed income portfolios, and uh, they had to have a way of hedging. Uh, not only system-wide risk, but a change in the value of the dollar, and sort of the consequences of bad fiscal and monetary policies, which were so evident in the 70s. So, that was really the genesis of the business. And you know, putting together what is sort of the defensive strategy, we've done that for decades. Our wealth management company is sort of the offensive complement to that. So defense and offense together. Who do you need on the field at a given time? What emphasis do you need within a portfolio structure? Um, we, we kind of bring the best of both worlds to the table.
1: Yeah. And one of the things I like about your, your outline that I'm looking at as you talk about um, one of the most important things you can do to prepare for volatility is to expand and build your
2: vocabulary. Can you
1: explain what you mean by that comment?
2: Yeah, well, it's very clear that the world is getting more complex and we're dependent more and more on specialists in different fields. And if you don't want to necessarily rely on an expert, but rather guide and participate with an expert in, in a given area. It's important that you educate yourself. I mean, I, that you see that the, the nec- necessity of this within medicine. You know, when you go into a doctor's office, it's important to have some questions with you to to know what the language and vocabulary is, and to be ultimately the decision maker, not necessarily dependent even on a doctor, although you would take his advice clearly uh, in the process. I think wealth management is is something similar. The better educated you are, uh, the better you understand the landscape, the wiser the decisions you're going to make, and that's with the council, with the wise council of professionals in the field.
1: That's a great point, and that um, it seems like you use the field of medicine and ex- as an example. A lot of times now, we, we we find ourselves not in a position where we have that one doctor we count on for everything, and, and instead we're in part of a a system that. You might have several different doctors, some that you don't, you've never met before, and they're coming at you with this information. It's important to arm yourself with some information in the financial world as well. A lot of people are moving towards institutional, robotic type of um, general day-to-day advice, and they may not have that person that they want to count on day by day. So they need to educate themselves. and How do they how do they do that? Is it just a matter of going to Google, or or is it a certain? Websites or certain people you tie yourself to?
2: You know, I I think the first time you read Shakespeare, it's a little awkward and uncomfortable. It's a language that you don't really know, but by the second act, you're beginning to feel the rhythm Mm -hmm. and understand. Language was different at the time, and I think you find the same thing within the world of finance and economics. It's a question of familiarizing yourself, steeping yourself in it, and not being intimidated up front, but being committed to learning the language and the nuance of the language. So, you know, whether that's reading the Financial Times uh, on a daily basis, The Economist on a weekly basis, you know, these are things that. You may not understand everything that you read week one, but by the end of the year uh, the vocabulary is common and you understand who the players are and the landscape is clear so I think that is sort of jumping into the deep end uh, you begin to acclimate after a while
1: so just getting started somewhere and starting to learn some of the some of the language it's not just about stocks and bonds anymore there's a lot of things going on and one of the things that are concerning people these days is this volatility of the market and is, you know, is the stock market overvalued? When will interest rates rise? What will that do to everything? All of that spells out to uh, volatility and um, tell us what, what you see happening or what you think is going on uh, these days and how should people prepare for that?
2: Well, the point of volatility and the purpose um, that I think a defensive posture takes in this environment is the markets are having a hard time figuring out if the central bank policies, which have sort of held things together the last five or six years, are actually going to be effective. We see that the efforts of the European Central Bank have yet to really fix anything in Europe. Uh, on the other hand, we've got the People's Bank of China who are uh, desperate measures. I mean, just since July, 24 separate measures to try to this prop up the stock market. The Bank of Japan is, is out in the stock market buying stocks on the Japanese market. They're buying corporate bonds. They're buying government bonds. And these are extraordinary measures by central banks at, that have never been done before. And so I think what's important for people to know is, is that the verdict is out is this policy agenda going to work or is it not going to work and and what you see in terms of trajectory for markets whether it's our stock market here in the united states our bond market here in the united states our currency market they are going to radically move higher or radically move lower, depending on the the, the true effect of of these policies. Um, my belief is is that it's 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 a tough case to build. That printing money uh, is is the basis of sort of the next round of growth in our economy. We need something a little bit more organic. Uh, the risk taking of entrepreneurs has tended to work well through time. And I think some of the ideas that the central banks are putting out there are, are totally garbage. Um, there has never been a time in history where inflation was desirable. And, and, and you have academics today who say, no, 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 we have to have inflation to have economic growth. The, the the history of mankind is progress via cheaper pricing. This is the purpose, this is what happened when we had the creation of the canals, this is what happened when we had the creation of the railroads, this is what happened when we had the creation of, of the, the laptop computer. As things have gotten cheaper, greater innovations have occurred, prices have come down and and, and enhanced our lives we should not be afraid of declining prices. We should be very afraid of a central bank that is hell-bent on creating inflation. So I, I, I think that the policies that are being put in place, if you ask the average household, do they like paying more for groceries and healthcare and college tuition and things of this nature, they'd say they actually are doing this on purpose. And that 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 just instinctively is where I think um, we have better economists at home than we do at the Fed. Um, it, the common sense would tell you this just isn't—it's it, not going to work.
1: Yeah, a lot. Uh, well, there's a lot of common sense undertones uh, that I I hear from people, and just the whole idea of. Uh, uh, putting Band-Aids, you know, you putting more Band-Aids and more Band-Aids and more Band-Aids on, on a problem instead of letting it go through its cycles. I've heard, you know, some people have said, you know, if they hadn't put all the Band-Aids out uh, on on the situation many years ago, we'd probably be coming out of a depression. So it would have been bad, but we'd be coming out of it organically, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, so, so we haven't. We've just kept putting Band-Aids on, keeping interest rates low and printing money like crazy or just these days they don't even print it. I guess they just make an electronic deposit. But uh, what's the what's the uh, what's the near future look like for this? I hear some people saying uh, uh, this this next year or so looks rocky. And now we've seen some some real tumultuous uh, activity in the markets over the last couple of weeks. What do you think's happening,
2: Bill? I think the dominoes are falling. We have uh, something that broke in China three days ago. And and this is very significant. When you're looking at accelerators to market dynamics, one of the big accelerators to uh, stock or bond or currency market dynamic is a change in monetary policy. Uh, And this one has major ripple effects. The Chinese are actively devaluing. They've devalued three times in the last three days, an insignificant amount. um, But I think you're, you're looking at the devaluation process just beginning, which will ultimately take them to a 20 or 30% percent devaluation. The chaos that that creates throughout the emerging markets uh, is absolutely ginormous. The kinds of chaos that we had in the Asian contagion circa 1997, 1998, um, we're gonna get a replay of that right here, right now. You're already seeing pressure in a lot of your commodity producing currencies, whether it's the Australian dollar, the New Zealand dollar, the Canadian dollar, the Brazilian real, uh, in lockstep with the Chinese devaluation. And of course, you've got Asian currencies, which are also uh, under a tremendous amount of pressure in this context of devaluation. This is the classic 1930s uh, beggar-thy-neighbor strategy of of, uh, currency war and currency devaluation. And I think uh, we, we need to be very, very cautious. I, I think investors should be raising cash as quickly as they can uh, and offsetting any potential inflationary losses with a good precious metals position uh, and be ready to buy value. I think there's going to be some tremendous values on the market as markets correct, but you're already seeing some of these corrections occur in emerging markets, uh, in, in the equity markets and emerging markets. The volatility in the currency markets overseas has been huge uh... you know we're talking eighteen to thirty percent in at least a dozen currencies in the last year in in a two-year stretch we've we've seen some currencies like the brazilian real drop close real drop close to sixty mean, the, percent these are these are things that the average u.s. investor would say why well, I didn't know that. And furthermore, why does it matter to me? Because we live in an interconnected world. What happens overseas as, as a result of the expansion of globalization does have an effect on us. It does have an effect on the prices of the things that we buy. It does have an effect on what our policymakers do. And, and I think this is why you're, you're seeing some gyrations in the stock market here uh, in, in the United States and in our currency markets, even in the last few days, because the markets are going to have to readjust to the idea that the fed cannot raise rates in september why because the global economy is quickly slowing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so the impact for
1: for you know a lot of people are pretty simple like you said about about this type of thing they look at their 401k they look at their statements that's one of their biggest cash assets or or cash-based assets and they say uh well, there's no yield in the bond market. There's no yield in money market. So I'm going to stick to uh, the stock market and climbed up on this, out on this, this limb on this tree and, and the wind's blowing. Should they be thinking about uh, uh, coming down the tree, coming down uh, and, and maybe jumping on another t- type of a tree like you're talking about, really getting their, their uh, education as far as what else is out there? Uh, what kind of hedges they should be looking at? Is it is it that time for people?
2: Bill, it is that time, and, and I would say this, you, know, you don't have to be an all-or-nothing guy. This is, this is where you should look and say, okay, I've got a large exposure to stocks. I just need to pare that back a bit. What's appropriate? 20%, 30% of a portfolio still invested in equities? That's fine. Just make sure that you have a sufficient hedge, and a part of that hedge is having buying power someplace else. So you know, reducing an acquisition and increasing cash gives you buying power. If you see a significant decline in equities, guess what? You can lower your cost basis and buy more of the same good stocks that you already own. I would say that you do need a position in precious metals. There's going to be more stress and strain on the financial system as a whole. We're talking about a massive derivative bubble, a massive government bond bubble, and and, and a system that quite frankly can't take the stress and strain that we saw in 2008 and 2009 for one simple reason. The bailout measures that we saw, 2008 and nine to the present, they're out of ammunition. I mean, they lowered rates from 5.5% to zero. Where do you go from zero? I mean, we've got a few Scandinavian countries that are moving their official rates into negative territory, half to three-quarters of a percent negative as a deposit rate. Uh, but but these, again, we don't have the same kind of flexibility we had in 2008 and 2009. The financial system is fairly frail so yes reduce your equity exposure don't eliminate it completely uh, things can go perfectly fine for the next two years before we really have uh, a disastrous experience in the market I don't know nobody knows nobody has a crystal ball but it definitely right. makes sense to lower your risk profile great
1: great points uh, and David Mccalvin of uh, did I get your name right David David
2: pronounce your last McElveney, name. McElveney, Mc- I, yeah, I respond to just about anything.
1: <laughs> McElvaney. David McElvaney is CEO of McElvany Financial Group. And again, there's never been a better time to be able to talk to someone like David about some of these options and strategies. David, how's the, how do our listeners get in touch with you best?
2: Well, thank you, Bill. Um, <laughs> best way to find us is at our website. It's macalvany.com That's spelled M-C-A-L-V- you can find our 800 number if you want to give us a call, but certainly you can listen to our weekly commentaries, the various films that we've created as sort of a uh, state of the union for clients to know what is happening this year and what they should be doing uh, strategically to protect their assets and help them grow. And again, uh, you want to be looking into uh, how to
1: protect your family from volatility. You want to try to figure out what's going on in the marketplace and expand your vocabulary. Again, uh, get in touch with David and uh, at uh, McElvaney.com and uh, check it out. What do you have to lose? David, thanks so much for joining. It's been a real pleasure to interview you today. And uh, I think uh, you gave us some, some great points to think about and to look forward to the next time we speak. Uh, Bill, thank you. Have a wonderful day. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back after this. So please stay with us.
0: Hi, everybody. This is Spike Real for The Exit Coach. Business owners, can you name the eight key value drivers that you and your managers should be focusing on to increase the value of your business? Introducing the Sellability Score Index. Visit our website and answer 25 questions about your business, and you will instantly receive your Sellability Score, showing you how well you stack up in the eight value driver areas. It's a great management tool. And it's absolutely free for our listeners. Just visit ExitCoachRadio.com and click Get My Sellability Score.
1: Does thinking about what will happen to your business if you're gone keep you awake at night? Will you get the price you need from your business to carry you through retirement? The BEI Network of Exit Planning Professionals is the world's leading advisor network with the power to help business owners transition out of business on their own timeline and terms. Ask your most trusted advisor to create a BEI plan for you or visit us at exitplanning.com. That's exitplanning.com.